Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Picture this, you're, you're flying into the parking lot of work. You're driving, and your car has lots of Christian bumper stickers on it, obviously lots of political bumper stickers as well. You're blaring your worship music. When you pull into the parking spot, you open up the door, with it still being loud because you want people to hear how loudly you're listening to your positive, encouraging K-Love. You get out of the car. You grab your stuff for work. You grab your very large Bible. You grab the tracks that you intend to anonymously lay on your coworkers' desks, even though everyone clearly knows that it's you putting the tracks on your coworkers' desks, and you are there ready to work, to be a Christian at work. So because of that, your eyes are always sort of peeled on who's doing a good job and who's not. And you're very happy because as a Christian, it's your duty, right? And you're very happy to let your boss know when someone's not doing their job right, right? So you make sure everything's upright. In between times, you post some Facebook memes while you're there. You walk over to maybe another desk and you get the gossip about that one person who's living a very immoral life, the one that is walking away from God. And because you're framing it as a prayer request, it's not gossip, right? Because you're saying, hey, would you pray for, because I've heard that this is something they're struggling with right now. And then you jump back into your car covered in religious bumper stickers. You turn your K-Love back on and you go home. But before that, you steal some office supplies, too, because there's plenty and no one's going to know. So I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to you. I don't know if that maybe is you or in part, or if by chance you know someone or have worked with someone who is the Christian at work. Has anyone ever worked with the Christian at work. I most certainly have. And I was a pastor, and I still worked with the Christian at work. You know, we have unfortunately gained a reputation of having quite a bit of a lack of self-awareness sometimes in our jobs. When we're talking about our faith, we're often known as moralistic. We're often known as preachy, as hypocritical, And our lives, no matter how much we believe or think, our lives can sometimes turn people very much off from what we say we believe in. But as we said last week, if we're intending to follow Jesus with our whole life, I think there's a lot of work. Gettysburg College found that the average American will spend 90,000 hours at work during their lifetime. That is a third of our life. And so if that's the case, we have to have some vision for what it means to follow Jesus with our work, with our jobs. Something beyond the American dream. Something beyond just making a lot of money and climbing the ladder and retiring and dying. There has to be more than this. 
So let's get this out of the way up front. It is possible to follow Jesus in and through our work without being that Christian. It is possible. It is very possible for us. And so what I want to do today is I want to pray first, and we're going to jump in together and look at some choices that we make in this to choose a life that is like Jesus with our coworkers. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in together. Father, Lord, we want to be the kind of people who are a light, who are good news to the people we work with. And so, Lord, I just ask this morning for your wisdom. The Scripture says wisdom that is from above would come and meet us here. Wisdom that shapes us, that shapes our witness in this world. Wisdom that is Christ-like and not just Christian. And God, that by your wisdom in these scriptures and these truths that we proclaim together, you would shape the kind of people who are drawing one another in, drawing co-workers into love and not judgment, into conviction, to hope. Let our lives be a beacon of hope that make people ask questions as to why there is something inside us that doesn't seem to fit everywhere else. So shape us in that, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, it's possible to be a follower of Jesus, to walk and live and love like Jesus without being that Christian. And in order to do that, we have to make some choices. We have to make choices uh, away from one thing and moving into something else. So we are not the moralistic, judgmental, passive, fearful people that I know we are all afraid to be. The first thing we choose in this, instead of forcing ourselves on others, instead of forcing our faith in the life of others, we choose patience and not preachiness. As we look at the early church, we see this rapid expansion. People are following Jesus at an incredible rate. Some historians actually think there was about a thousand around the time that Jesus was resurrected, and then all of a sudden in 300 years, there's half the Roman Empire. As many as 32 million people, from a thousand to 32 million people in just about 300 years. And they did this not through evangelism campaigns. They did not do this through grand strategies. They did it through patient persistent witness and love. Colossians 4, Paul writes of this. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outside. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, notice what Paul is talking about here first, is that God will open the door. There's a difference between God opening a door for conversation, God opening a door for, for us to be able to serve, opening a door to share our own faith journey, and us actually forcing that door open. Do we see the difference? When God opens a door, the door opens 
for what he desires. When we force ourselves, force opportunities that God has not prepared for us, we end up often doing more harm than good. What we talk about here a lot around here is that God is already present and already at work in all things. He's already present and at work in the lives of those we work with and interact with on a day-to-day basis. And if we begin to trust this, we trust that even when they don't know it, he's already preparing the time, the place, the moment when your life, your love, your story, your conversation will be ready for his work in their lives. It is a practice of radical trust to believe that I do not bring God to other people, that God is not absent from the lives of others, that I am already joining a God who never stopped working in this person's life, even if they do not know it. You know people know when they are projects, amen? People know when they are are projects. People know when they are just one more evangelistic notch on your Bible belt. People can see right through it. And if that speaks to who the God we believe in is, if we have to bring a God to people, if we have to force God into conversation, into places, into stories, what kind of a God is that? But yet we believe that our God, the God we see revealed in the scriptures, is a God who is already present, already at work. And so with radical trust, we do not try to force ourselves into making people projects where they are. This posture is clearly, clearly the reason why we see the church expanding early on in the first few centuries. Alan Cryery wrote a book that's amazing called Patient Ferment of the Early Church. He says that Christians' focus was not on saving people or recruiting them. It was on living faithfully in the belief that when people's lives are rehabituated in the way of Jesus, others will want to join them. Now, let me be clear, though. There is a difference here between having patience and being passive. There is a difference between patience and passivity. We're not passively shying away from interactions with with outsiders, with people who are not believers. They were proactive. These early Christians were proactive in the life that they lived, living like Jesus, rehabituated in the way of Jesus. That's another way of saying discipleship. And they trusted that the lives that were being formed within themselves as individuals and as a community would actually draw people in. It was not passive, but it was patient. It was an expectation that God was already at work drawing men and women to himself. It's why Paul tells us in this scripture we just looked at, to make the most of every opportunity. Opportunities will come to speak for our faith. Make the most of it. Opportunities will come for us to have conversations, make the most of it. Paul says, be ready for that. Be ready. Don't be passive. Be patient and be ready. There will be an opportunity that God will open up a door and see conversations of faith happen that encourage and call people into places of love. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Or a door that I could have never opened 
in patience, God just slowly cracks open and opportunities to show love to someone shows up because he goes before. I talked about this last week. Our lives should demand an explanation. First Peter 3, 15, 15 and 16, but it should not demand attention. Our lives are different enough to think, why are, are these people, I want an explanation of why you are so hopeful, but that at the same time, they're not a life that just demands everyone's attention like the person I talked about at the beginning here, the person who's coming in with their Bible, rolling in high. That's not what's happening. I realize that we can take upon ourselves in this, though, this is a course correction. I realize we can take upon ourselves the idea that we have an unreasonable amount of pressure upon ourselves then to live in a certain way. It's the belief that if I'm going to be an example, if I'm going to reflect Jesus to those around me, then I better be very dang near close to perfect. That's the pressure, the false expectation that we're given. That's why the second choice is that we choose integrity and not perfection. There is a difference. First Peter 2 says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now, it's easy to read these verses and think that what Peter is saying here is, listen, you're not like those evildoers. You're not like the bad people. So behave. If you want to stand out, you better have better morals. You better morally exceed the people around you. If you want to make a difference in the world, you better be better than they are. Do you think that's what he's saying? No. Of course he's not saying that. Of course he's not saying integrity. This word integrity, it comes from this root word where we get integrated. It literally means wholeness. To have an integrity driven life is to have a life that is working towards wholeness. The Bible, it talks a lot about having an undivided heart where our attention and our affection and our actions come from a common center. Not that our heart would be driven from one thing over here to this over there, but that our heart would be whole and one. That's what integrity actually is. It's not moral superiority. Integrity is wholeheartedness. It's bringing our lives to a place where our heart is one. Which means that when, not if, when we fall short of reflecting the character of Christ, the integrity thing to do is to apologize. Is to say, hey, I messed this one up. I've fallen short. I repent. Not from shame, but from, from authenticity. There is a huge difference. Should our lives be noticeably different? Yes, but that comes, that difference comes in our authenticity. It does not come in our perfection. Christ is seen, my friends, in authenticity. He is never seen in people who think they are perfect. Let me ask, how different would our world be if Christians were known as the people who apologized first? 
if we were known as the people who went out of our way to repent, to move forward, because we have integrity. We're not perfect. We have integrity, and we are moving towards, moving towards wholeness in Christ. That's only possible, though, when we make our our next choice today, and that's that we choose humility and not self-centeredness. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. This is a very not American verse, and I love it. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Two phrases there, selfish ambition and vain conceit. And I know I, sometimes I become that like Greek word nerd, and when I do, everybody's like, oh, here we go. But this is one of those places where the Greek words are so cool. You bring this to life, this word selfish ambition. It literally means electioneering for office. You're literally campaigning on behalf of yourself. That's what selfish ambition here means. You are saying, I'm running for proverbial office in the office, in my workplace. Then there's vain conceit, which means empty pride and glory. You're puffed up with your own ego. You believe that you are great. And what's most important in understanding these two phrases together is the reason why you think you are great is because you are great in comparison to everyone else. Because you cannot have selfish ambition, this electioneering and this vain conceit, this empty pride and glory for yourself without constantly having your eyes on how you stand up to other people. That's what it means to electioneer. It means I am running against others. I am in the running for the best, for the greatest, for the wisest, for the most moral, in comparison with everyone else. And Scripture says, do nothing out of this. Do absolutely nothing out of preaching your own greatness. Do nothing that is about your own pride and glory. Instead, focus your attention on how you could live and love in the interest of others. Again, a very, very not American verse. The Bible is not against, though. It's not against ambition. It's against selfish ambition. That needs to be clear. There is a difference, my friends, between selfish ambition and godly ambition. It's against a self-glorifying ambition that is concerned with your image, your brand in comparison with everyone else. It's awesome. I love seeing followers of Jesus who are entrepreneurs and small business owners and, and have these dreams that God has stirred in them that have grown and multiplied. I've seen this with my wife and her business. It's amazing to see God work in these ambitions that come from a place of service and grace and love and not self. But we have to differentiate. The Bible differentiates between selfish ambition and godly ambition. Godly ambition can climb a ladder, but not at the expense of taking up your cross. Because when godly ambition reaches a place where you're climbing over others, when godly ambition reaches a place where the choice is between I will either climb the ladder of success 
and at the same time exploit other people? Godly ambition chooses the cross because the most ambitious, the most ambitious the world thing the world has ever seen is the cross. The downward mobility in the way of Jesus. That's the picture the scriptures are giving us. I hope this is a room filled with healthy, godly ambition. I know there are dreams and giftings and ideas that are stirring in this room that I know God is going to bring about. But if we don't ask the question, where is this ambition coming from? Is this ambition for my own vain glory? Am I doing these things because I just want to preach my own greatness? Or does this come from a place of cruciformed, cross-shaped, driven love? There comes a point where we have to decide. We'll all probably in our lifetimes, in our work, come to a place where the choice comes between success by a worldly standard and how I will treat other people. And whether or not my success actually demeans the humanity of others. Whether my success actually is unloving. And that's when we make this last choice. We choose justice and not indifference. And the Bible makes this abundantly clear through, throughout that material, like, material resources, material success at the expense of other people, at the expense of image bearers, it is an offense to God. It runs entirely contrary to who we were created to be. Isaiah 58, one of my favorite scriptures, it's the scathing rebuke of the hypocrisy of the people of God in this moment. They're, they're getting ready for a fast. And it says here that they ask me, this is God speaking, they ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to, to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and, and, and you've not noticed Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? What's being said here is that outward piety that ignores the plight of our neighbors, that exploits people for economic gain, that cuts corners without concern for how it affects other people and those we influence, it is an offense to God. An offense. And he's saying, no matter how wonderful and spiritual your gatherings are, no matter how much on the outside you look like you were on fire for God. Listen, I've been in seasons of where I felt like I was close to God. I've never been like, I'm literally putting on sackcloth and ashes and laying on the ground screaming on fire for God. These people would have looked like they were in it. And yet God says, in all of your noisiness, in all of your religion, in all of your outward piety, because you do not love your neighbors, it's empty. It's worthless. It's loveless. It's exploitative. Because you are demeaning and you are undermining the dignity of your neighbor. 
God is making it clear. He does this so much in the scriptures that our religion, anything about our religion is empty if we treat people unjustly. If we do not love our neighbor as ourself through our work, our, our devotion, our, our worship is, is worthless if we continue to ignore the call to love our neighbor as ourself. So much so that as you continue to read Isaiah 58, there's a promise of revival. And it's not a promise of revival that comes because everybody got their, their personal moral lives all in order finally. It's a revival that comes because people finally start taking care of their neighbors. It says, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing fingers and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry. This, I love this little part right here. It doesn't say spend your money on behalf of the hungry. It says spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. That's the promise of God of revival, of restoration. That's the promise of not just then, but of now when we are a people who are known as those who love their neighbors as themselves. When we are known as people who do not choose worldly success at the expense of our neighbors, when we choose dignity, when we choose people over profit, that's when revival, the scripture says, comes. There are Christians here I know who are in business, who own businesses, who have employees under their care. Um, one of the things I love about our church is that there's a lot of entrepreneurs and business leaders, and, and, and this is an incredibly, incredibly generous church, like insanely generous. I'm so honored to see the way that our, our folks here that are in business are not about themselves. I see it over and over again. I get to see this up close. My friend, for instance, uh, Joe Ross, who was one of the co-owners of, of North Lime Coffee and, and, and Donuts, um, I've watched him check in on his employees personally. He's, he's made sure that they have what they financially need above and beyond what he's actually paying them for. They are behind on rent. He's helped out. During the pandemic, when he got the, the loan that, we, that a lot of the small businesses got after he took care of those payroll things, he took the rest of the loan and split it up and made it a bonus for all his employees. He made sure they had what they needed, justice and work. I've seen it with one of my best friends, Chad Bowman and Jay Pennington, as they work with folks in housing, as they are contractors and realtors, flipping homes, hiring recovering addicts paying people an actual living wage for their work so they can take care of themselves, working to act with justice in a world where housing sometimes, there are people that we have heard about in a city who will go and call code enforcement on people who can't take care of their home so they can go in and make sure that they get them out of the house, buy it for really cheap, flip it and make tons and tons of money. That's the, 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 the environment some folks are working in sometimes. I've seen our business leaders, our realtors, our, our contractors, the folks who are working in these places are working with justice, caring for people. It's beautiful to see. It's amazing. I'm so proud that when we gather in a room like this, I can gather in a room and worship beside someone who I know that Monday through Friday in their job are actually caring and loving their neighbors with their work. It's awesome. It also means it's divesting and even disrupting industries that exploit people. 
There's a, a friend of mine, Dustin Pugel, we were talking this week about predatory payday lending companies that charge 391% APR. 391%. That's wrong. It takes advantage of people. Nonprofits, I know, that help felons work after they come out after, uh, upon release, helping others with paperwork and transportation for, for immigrants acquiring IDs because it's the only way they can get jobs. Stuff like this, little stuff that you wouldn't see in a big program, little stuff that you wouldn't see in, in, in some sort of, of church gathering, not necessarily. You'll see it in just the individual lives of people who are stepping into, into the places where there is need and loving their neighbors as themselves to make sure there is an opportunity for people to have jobs. It's at the heart of the civil rights movement. You see in the pictures all the times in the marching, look what it's about. Jobs. Why? Because there is dignity. There is dignity in empowering people for that and stepping forward in that. It was about economic and vocational justice, access to jobs and fair pay. And they were doing this not as a side project away from their faith. They were doing this as an expression of their faith. Myself and, and Chad and Jay and, 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 um, and Dan, we got to go to to uh, uh, Alabama this past year and go to 16th Street Baptist Church and, and visit this. And this, this center where people in this church basement are actually planning these, these marches and stuff like that. But it's one of the most worshipful, Jesus-honoring places you could ever walk into. It was beautiful to see those two things come together, not as separate realities, not as here's the, the worky stuff over here, here's the justice stuff over here, and here's the church stuff over here. As one wholehearted faith in loving God, and loving their neighbors. Beautiful. We have a choice as followers of Jesus, I think, especially in this world right now, to be a people, to be men and women who when we enter into our work, we are thinking about how we might love our neighbor through our nine to five. Love our neighbor in the place that sometimes feels mundane, feels like God's not there, but somehow we begin to trust that because he's already present and at work, then we choose. We choose patience. We choose integrity. We choose authenticity. We choose humility. We choose justice. God, help us to make those choices. God, where we have been preachy, where we have been judgmental, where we have cut corners, where we have disregarded the needs of our neighbors, we repent. I thank you, God, that this is a room full of people I know, I've seen be living examples. And so God, teach us even more so. And God, I want to pray this week then, even just boldly, just pray this week and in, in, in our workplaces, God, open that door. Open that door that we may think could never be opened. Let that conversation come about that we thought never could happen. Let that opportunity to serve come about 
that we never thought we'd be ready for. Open the door, Lord, for your work to be seen by us. Not to begin because, Lord, you're already present. You're already at work. But in a room full of people working in insurance, realtors, baristas, stay-at-home moms, nonprofit leaders, contractors, people working in the medical field. You will place us this weekend in the lives of those who through our patient, humble witness might be able to see a love they've never seen before. So God, open that door that we may be the hands and feet and the voice of love in our work. We thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you this morning for your cross. This body broken for us. This blood shed for our sins, for our redemption, for our restoration. And because of this meal we share today, we are united, Lord, with you. And we are united as one big, messy, misfit, beautiful family called the church. So we remember today, we take these elements remembering what you've done for us. Speak to us, lead us, comfort us, challenge us. Holy Spirit, do your work. We pray this in your name.